0: Welcome to Simply PM&R, a Mayo Clinic Talks production. The simple solution for PM&R healthcare professionals who want to keep up while on the go. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Bro, physiatrist and PM&R at Mayo Clinic. Electromyography, EMG, we were all trained in this specialized test, and there have been a lot of changes that have occurred over the last few years in how it's performed. So whether you're doing this test yourself or reading reports on EMGs, you need to know this new information. Today, we're joined by Dr. Andrea Boone, a colleague at Mayo Clinic. Andrea is an electrodiagnostician and a physiatrist in the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Department. Thanks for joining us, Andrea.
1: Pleased to be here. So often I get asked,
0: when is it appropriate to order an EMG?
1: So I think um, obviously whenever you have a patient when you're considering that there could be a nerve or a muscle uh, problem responsible for their symptoms, then that it's an ideal tool to help you figure that out. But also you'll have some patients that you already know they have some type of neuromuscular disease, but you can also get extra information from your EMG regarding the severity of the nerve lesion, uh, maybe whether a myopathy is active or not and and actually needs more treatment versus whether they're having problems just from being on the steroids type of thing, Um, prognosis with severe nerve injuries, whether there's any chance of recovery or whether they should be being referred for a tendon transfer, that type of thing.
0: Is is there a period where it's too early to order an EMG, if if you're thinking of one?
1: So, yeah, typically, the first week is pretty early, so especially in something that is not a severe a problem. If you have a nerve transection, then um, you know you've got a severe nerve injury. You might get a little bit of information, but you actually still can't tell in the first week whether it's a f- complete transection or just more of an injury to the nerve. Um, and certainly in radiculopathies, you know the more common things we see, you really want to wait. I think two to three weeks at least. Um, for symptom onset, from symptom onset, because then you'll start seeing the fibrillations if they've got significant nerve injury. Um, they they can start to show up after one week, but if it's not a if it's not really severe, it might take a bit longer before you see much.
0: So, when you're doing an EMG, do you always do uh, the two components, the needle examination and the uh, the nerve conduction,s or can you do them independently of each other?
1: So. Um, Typically, like I would say 95% of the time we do them both because they both provide different pieces of information and and you're putting together a puzzle really in this setting. Um, We have occasional situations, for example, a patient with CIDP who's coming back for follow-up where we just do nerve conductions to see if they've responded to the treatment and the needle doesn't tend to change that much. um, So we often don't repeat the needle in that setting. Uh, There's a few settings where we just do needle exam. Um, For example, a thoracic radiculopathy. Really, nerve conduction studies aren't going to help you there unless the patient's a diabetic and you want to see how bad their peripheral neuropathy is as well. So it's rare, but occasionally you do one or other of the studies. You know, uh,
0: the question I always had when you're doing a needle examination um, for like, let's say, a cervical radiculopathy. Are there certain muscles you should be needling and certain ones you shouldn't be?
1: So I think um, the best way to guide your needle exam in any, in any situation is examine the patient, see if you can find weakness. If they've, if they've got a weak muscle, that's the muscle to examine, obviously. Um, If you don't find any clinical weakness, then I typically will try to cover all of the nerve roots in in the cervical spine or the lumbar spine because people don't always present the way they should, how how it's set out in the textbook that they should present with a C6 radiculopathy or whatever. And then I do, um, if I have a really high index of suspicion for, for example, a C6 radiculopathy and I don't find anything in the deltoid and the biceps, then I'll go further and I'll look at more C6 muscles than I typically would because sometimes you get fascicular involvement and you will see changes in one muscle more than in another. And that's especially true in um, things like Parsonage-Turner syndrome. You can get very, very isolated involvement of certain fibers of the of a nerve. So one muscle is completely fine and another one is really affected. So uh, again, your exam, your physical exam should help you direct which muscles you look at. But... Uh, you, you kind of get, get a, a comfort level with the ones that you like sticking for, you know, for a C5 or, DIC or a C6 or a um, And then I, I usually always cover the nerve roots on either side of that as well anyhow to make sure that I'm not missing anything.
0: So actually there's three components to a, a, a good EMG. There's the physical exam, the, the nerve conductions, and the needle
1: yeah the history and exam is super important Um, you should always do and actually our billing is is the way it's written up is it it includes a history a focused history and physical examination and without that you really shouldn't be doing a EMG Um, you you should be coming up with a differential diagnosis based on your history and exam and then you use the EMG to narrow that down and try to figure out what it is
0: Today's episode was sponsored by Mayo Clinic Online CME, offering on-demand medical education and a wide variety of specialties. This includes the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation online board review course. Enter your boards with confidence, whether it's your first time through or for recertification. Learn on your own time and earn credit. Register today at ce.mayo.com. Dot edu slash br online you know I've recently read that ultrasound is being used in EMG practice what are you using ultrasound for
1: so yeah EMG itself really has not evolved a lot over the last 50 years we're pretty much doing the same stuff as we did before just maybe with a little better techniques um, but ultrasound is a relatively new tool in our armamentarium. Uh, neuromuscular ultrasound is a is an, a kind of an area that is rapidly expanding. Uh, in Europe, they've been doing it for longer probably, but in the States, it's taking off now. It's another thing that really is very complementary to nerve conduction studies and EMG. And again, most of the time, I don't think ultrasound or EMG should be done in isolation. They go together really well. There's a few situations where you could argue that you could just do ultrasound or you could just do EMG, but for the most part, like entrapment neuropathies. In, with EMG, we can tell that a nerve is involved. Uh, we sometimes can, can localize where it's involved, but we can't tell you what's causing the entrapment. Um, ultrasound, if you add ultrasound into that, you might get more information for the referring physician. You can tell them, well, there's a ganglion cyst that's compressing the median nerve at the carpal tunnel or, you know, there's, a, there's um, a neurofibroma of the ulnar nerve and that's why they've got symptoms. Um, there's a pseudoaneurysm that has entrapped the median um, nerve at the elbow after a, after a needle stick, you know, after an IV was placed. Or So they really go together perfectly and if you have the time, it's just, I would like to do ultrasound with all of my entrapment neuropathies. And there's also a role for it in a lot of the more generalized neuropathies, any that, especially any that have um, demyelination. So, um, you know, we see changes in multifocal motor neuropathy, in hereditary neuropathy with tendency to pressure palsy, rare neuropathies like leprosy. They they all show changes. AIDP and CIDP show changes on ultrasound. So, I think mm. there's a lot of potential for use of it in the future, as people get. Um, better with their skills and especially the machines keep evolving so that we're getting really good resolution of the nerves on ultrasound.
0: So you mentioned they're complementary. Um, do we have a way of diagnosing carpal tunnel with ultrasound?
1: So yeah, now there's a, there's a pretty big body of literature to support ultrasound in the diagnosis of carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, we use it in the Mayo Lab. We, we tend to do nerve conduction studies and this is one setting where some people won't do needle exam when it's carpal tunnel syndrome. I still like to do a needle examination because a C6 radiculopathy is a pretty good mimicker of carpal tunnel syndrome. And there's a lot of people who come along with carpal tunnel syndrome that we find on nerve conduction studies who have no symptoms. So it's nice to know that that it is truly carpal tunnel syndrome that's giving them their their symptoms and so I tend to do a quick screen, nerve root screen with needle EMG as well when I do the nerve conductions for the carpal tunnel. But now we use ultrasound as well and we anybody that we find carpal tunnel in, I think you can argue that it's reasonable to do ultrasound to look for anatomic variants that the surgeon might wanna know about like bifid median nerves, persistent median arteries or any cause for the compression besides the kind of typical idiopathic carpal tunnel. So tenosynovitis, you might treat that differently than going to a surgery, um, you, you know, a steroid injection might take care of their tenosynovitis, and then their carpal tunnel syndrome gets better too. And so we use um, a couple of measures. To, the, the most robust measure for ultrasound in diagnosing entrapment neuropathy is um, cross-sectional area. So we measure the nerve inside the hyperechoic margin of the nerve on ultrasound. And we take that cross-sectional area and we've developed our own normal values at Mayo so that we are pretty confident that if, if their median nerve cross-sectional area is greater than 0.12 square centimeters, then they have carpal tunnel. If they're in that group that have mild enlargement, we can use the patient as their own control. So we look at their, the size of their median nerve in their forearm, and then we compare it to the size of the median nerve at the wrist and using a ratio that's, it's specific to that patient, you know, a ratio, we use a cutoff of greater than two. If it's twice as big at the wrist as it is in the forearm, then we're pretty confident that we can diagnose carpal tunnel, even if the nerve conduction studies are normal.
0: You know, another area of use of ultrasound, I would think, would be with the needle examination, making sure you're in the in the right muscle. Is that being employed at all? Yeah,
1: this is actually where we first started using it in our lab. It's, it's a fantastic tool, and physiatrists are ideally situated to use it. A lot of us are doing ultrasound guided joint injections, so we're very comfortable finding the needle with ultrasound. If so, it's, it's the best tool around. I mean, if I'm doing muscles, any chest wall muscles like rhomboid, serratus, especially in a person that's a little bit heavier and I can't feel mm-hmm. their ribs or I can't feel their scapula, I use ultrasound all the time to make sure I get into that muscle. Also, if you have really um, atrophic muscles because you've got a severe nerve injury, sometimes it's, you know, the, the muscle is a millimeter thick and you really can't find it where you expect it to be. So if you've got an ultrasound machine in the, in the room with you, you just throw on the probe, take a look and bam, you can go straight into the muscle. And especially in the diaphragm, we've used it a ton for that. It's really helped our practice a lot with diagnosing diaphragm involvement. We can use ultrasound to look at the thickness of the diaphragm and how much is thickening with inspiration. And then if we really need to, we can put the needle in under ultrasound guidance to get it right into that atrophic diaphragm.
0: Now, Angie, you've, you've obviously been doing this for a long time, even though you look like you just got out of residency. Um, if I was someone starting out in practice, what pearls of wisdom would you give me regarding EMG?
1: So I think... Um, one of the things I tell our residents, you know, is you always want to correlate it clinically with what you're seeing clinically. So you're far better off under calling something than overcalling something. The referring physician, you're really doing them a disservice to. If you send somebody out and say, Oh yeah, they've got a myopathy and then they've got to go down that route where they have to get a muscle biopsy and, mm-hmm. and so for I think myopathies are one of the harder things to know whether to call. And I always say is there rapid recruitment? If there's not rapid recruitment, it's probably not a myopathy. Are there fibrillations? If you're not seeing fibrillation potentials, it's probably not that severe of a myopathy. So even if they do have a slight myopathy, you're probably not doing them a disservice by undercalling it. Versus the patient that really is normal and you overcall and say they do have a myopathy, you're you're you know opening them up to more testing, um, some of which is invasive, that potentially has complications and you really haven't helped them or helped the referring physician that much. And similarly with radiculopathies, it's the same thing. If there's no fibrillations and I'm on the fence about whether the motor units are big or not, I'm going to err on the side of saying they're probably normal. Or I'll go to another muscle that's completely uninvolved and look and see what's normal for that person. Because you have to remember that everybody, it's a bell curve of what's normal in EMG. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty wide range. There's some small motor units that are, Totally normal for that person and somebody else has pretty big motor units at baseline. So I think those are two of my pearls, I guess.
0: We've been talking about electrodiagnostics with Dr. Andrea Boone, a colleague at Mayo Clinic. Andrea is an electrodiagnostician and a physiatrist in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Thanks for your time, Andrea.
1: No problem. You're welcome.
0: Are you a physiatrist preparing for your upcoming PMR part two oral boards? Do you need to brush up on your examination skills? Through a combination of didactic lecture, case vignettes, optional mock oral examinations, and online modules, the pm Board Review Course can help guide your preparation. This vital course will be held on the historic Mayo Clinic campus in downtown Rochester, Minnesota every spring, just prior to the American Board of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation oral examinations. For complete course information and to receive an email when registration is open, visit ce.mail.edu/pmr.